Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and uh, yes, we are in a pub. We're glad to have some background music, have some action going on, people chomping uh, on food at other <laughs> tables and talking to each other, and uh, we're chomping on food and talking to each other here. In fact, if you hear any chomping, that's uh, Tom <laughs> chomping away on an order of wings. That he and they just, are good. <laughs> yeah, just had delivered. But he's going to do his best to keep his chomping away from the microphone. And uh, thank you. You know what? I'd like to have another hooker, Thomas Hooker. Anyway, that's a beer, man. That's a beer. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about the beer. Thomas Hooker is a uh, is a is a brewery uh, here in Connecticut. And that's your story, and you're sticking to it. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. That's right. We're not going to edit that out. Anyway, uh, it's great to have you on the podcast, and uh, here we go. <laughs> I'm a C.R. Wiley, and I'm a, uh, I've taught philosophy. I'm, I'm a pastor, and uh, I've been a home improvement contractor. I've, I've even been a, uh, an investor in investment real estate, and I've done even other things. I've written books, uh, Household in the War for the Cosmos, Man of the House, and other things. And I've got a book coming out on Tom Bombadil, which hopefully will be coming out in a month or two. But... That's do you enough have about any me. other books planned? <laughs> Actually, I do. I do. I know Lynn is here, you know, waiting to, to hear about that. But, uh, yes, I, I am. I've got other books uh, in the works. But, uh, all right. <laughs> Let's go to you, Glenn. <laughs> I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, um, author of several books, most recently Slaying Leviathan on limited government and resistance theory. And I head up something called Every Square Inch Ministries. And my wife, Lynn, is a major fan of a trilogy, or would be if it were actually a trilogy by now, <laughs> written by C.R. Wiley. I promise, I promise. <laughs> I will get it done, I promise. <laughs> anyway, Tom. Tom Price, eating good wings right now. <laughs> my, my mouth is on fire. All right. <laughs> those, are, those are good. Um, uh, systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, uh, teaching those at Gordon-Conwell and other places. And, uh, but my main enjoyment in life is what we're doing right now. So, All right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, I want to... Uh, talk today, by the way, in case you're wondering, it's my day, and I'd like to talk about uh, something that uh, might be uh, coming at you from a, from a sort of odd angle, and the, the thing I'm, I would like to talk about is the influence of Darwin, not only on political thought, but on theology and philosophy. Now, when we think about Darwin, of course, we think about you know, his uh, seminal work on species and the origin of species. And uh, I think we're all familiar. I don't want to go into a long explanation with regard to what, you know, Darwin said or taught. But I do want to focus in on one aspect, thank you, of it. And that is that the implications of the theory of evolution particularly as it relates to sort of the ongoing process that has not stopped that we call evolution, which means that we're still in process. 
if that is taken to heart, it has implications for everything, not just simply in our understanding of our origins biologically, but our, our, our way of understanding what it means to be a human being, uh, what social life uh, is supposed to be, uh, or how it's understood, and what we ought to think about it, uh, the future in terms of where things are heading. Now, I think uh, we're familiar with, the, with a couple of things. Uh, one is the uh, matter of natural selection, and which is sort of the mechanism by which uh, evolution is understood to occur. And let me just summarize what that implies. With natural selection, you have a kind of fitness for an environment that a creature, some species of animal, finds itself in. And naturally, naturally, those uh, creatures who uh, are more fit to survive in a particular environment go on to perpetuate them, their, you know, their, their, their species, uh, pass their genes along to the next generation, so forth. As, well, Chris, before you move on, sure. one important thing that most people miss there is that's not competition between species. Right. It's competition within species. Right, right. Meaning, in practical terms, whichever human beings in a particular environment are better fit to survive in that environment, they will pass their genes on it, and the other human beings will die out. Right. And fit means reproductive. That's right. Fit is limited to that, mm-hmm. that range of, of mm-hmm. you know, so. so anyway, yeah, that's all, those are all important things to consider. But what you have then is not only that, but coupled with that, a kind of process that is undirected. The only direction that you, you can ascribe to the process is kind of a, you know, sort of retrospective. You can say that, well, it just so happened that this group of people, that this particular species of finch or what have you, uh, because of, of uh, alterations and um, because of... Uh, of, you know, uh, mutation uh, found themselves accidentally without any kind of design or forethought in a better position to, to you know, access the resources in their environment, uh, succeed where others, other creatures with, within their own species failed to, to uh, succeed and so forth. So anyway, so you got this sort of unplanned, spontaneous process that occurs through mutation, and then you have the mechanism of natural selection. And we're told that this applies to human beings, that this is not something that we just observe with regard to other species, but it is true with regard to our own species, human beings. Now, often when the subject is addressed by Christians, the subject is, is, is explored, or I should say refuted, from the standpoint that the Bible says it happened a different way. And, and people say, refute it, and I'm, I'm not, I don't have any problem with this, this argument, but it's more or less, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, amen. And then the thinking stops. Now, there are a lot more things to think about a lot, there's a lot more to think about with regard to this, uh, this theory. And I you know, already mentioned the things that I think we ought to think about in terms of how this theory has come to 
play a role in politics, in philosophy, uh, in history, and in, 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 uh, in a very wide range of things that I think, because we tend as modern people to segment reality into various disciplines, subjects, categories, we fail to see how things have a way of leaping over the boundaries of one category into another and affecting them. So anyway, that's what I'd like to talk about today. And if, you, and if I haven't said, it, said so to this point, it's my day. It's my day to introduce the subject. So now I've said a few things, and I know you guys, you know, you were nodding. I could see you were thinking a little bit about what I said. How do you want to respond to what I just, uh, pr- you know, introduced? Uh, yeah, I would first also add not just the God said it, I believe that that settles it kind of argument, but also the kinds of things that are raised by intelligent design sure. uh, that would strongly suggest that the evolutionary theories we have now don't really hold water. But even that, it seems to me, is not adequate because while it may deal with the basic question of evolution, it doesn't deal with the broader implications of the idea. And whether, you know, I I suppose the argument would be that if you refute evolution, then these broader implications go away, but I'm not sure they do. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. I mean, for me, I want to kind of sever it from a couple things. I mean, first and foremost, this isn't a question of whether or not God created everything. Um, if there is natural selection and there is anything, there mean, therefore means there is the Christian God. There is no being. With, uh, the question of creation for Christians, first and foremost, is being. In the beginning, God created. The, the introduction to being entirely. Evolution presupposes being. It is, and it has to do something on what is. The Christian doctrine of creation has to do with what is, period. So whether or not God uses evolution in some fashion or not is a secondary question to whether or not the Christian God created or not. So, so evolution is not an alternative to the doctrine of creation. It presupposes that there must be a creation and there must be being in order for it to do its thing. The next level comes to the exegetical and then the, the, the scientific. On the exegetical level, <clears throat> There are problems, huge problems, in trying to make the Genesis text fit the Darwinian right. vision. And, and I don't think Genesis wants to do it, and I don't think Genesis needs to do it, because Genesis isn't about explaining what, what Darwin is trying to. So we can eliminate competition between Darwin's theory, A, with the doctrine of creation because it has nothing to do with it. It presupposes it because if there is no being, then Darwin can't do anything. Secondly, with the doctrine of Genesis, with the teaching of Genesis, we have to first and foremost understanding what's going on there and what is going on there has nothing first and foremost to do with supplying an alternative scientific theory. It's talking about the way in which the creator and the creation unpacked the, 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 the whole inaugurating of the creation to be the place where God and humanity dwell together. So it's not dealing with that. But then the question is Darwin as a philo- you know, with its phil- philosophical presuppositions and its, its science. And that's really where the problem lies. Yeah, and, and I'd like to focus in right now, not so much on the science. Yeah. You know, what you addressed with uh, the question of... Uh, Intelligent design. Our friends, you know, in in Seattle at the, you know, uh, what's the institute there? Discovery Institute. Discovery Institute. They're doing great work, 
And I, I don't want to go into the to, into that matter. My my focus today is exclusively on how has this influenced politics, philosophy, sort of even our understanding of human nature. Let me let me go. Uh, let me take it a step further. Sure. Our understanding of theology. Sure. Because we have an entire system called process theology yes. that that argues that God is evolving too. Yes, that's right. Yep. So let me let me let me begin with that. So. Let me, make, let me confess something. There was a point in my life where I was more open to things that I have come to reject. One of those things is the doctrine of, of natural selection and what we call evolution. I've come to the place where I've rejected that. And, it, and the reason I've, I've, re, I've rejected, it might strike uh, a listener as maybe um, a, uh, a category error, but I don't think it is. This is why I've come to reject it. The people that I know who have most fully embraced it have rejected many of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. That was huge for me. I said, okay, there's something about this that leads you into all kinds of craziness. So you, 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 you raise the subject of open theism. One of the most uh, sort of influential open theists is, is a guy named Tom Ord, an old acquaintance of mine. The people in, you know, process theology, and yeah. by the way, Tom is a process theologian. Hmm. Um, the guy, the people who are in in that world, are are people who are advocating things that I think are incompatible with the Christian faith. And and some of the people who are in the biologos world, and I know some of those people, okay. I don't like what they represent or what they argue for, what they're trying to do. Well, that's right. You know, so what it what it, what that did to me is I said, okay, I got I need to step, take a step back. Hmm. I need to take a step back and and, and sort of. Think about this a little more deeply. And one of the can, things... Can I, can sure, I interrupt sure, for a moment? Yeah. One of the other really important guys in open theism is a man named Clark Pinnock. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. I know about and, him, sure. And uh, oh, yeah. Pinnock wrote one of the most important books, arguably, on inerrancy. Yeah. yeah. On inerrancy yeah. and infallibility of Scripture. It, it is a stunningly good book, but he moved away from that. That's right. He moved away he from moved, it. He moved very yeah. far away from it. And... I was just, at, literally today, I was talking to my pastor and, and Clark Pinnock came up. And one of the comments that he made about him is he thinks he did that, that he made that move away because he could not understand, he could not explain a number of things in Scripture, a number of things that the doctrine of God suggests. Yeah. And because he couldn't wrap his mind around it, he changed his concept of God. Mm. Now, what struck me about that is that um, a few episodes ago, we talked about negative theology. Right. And one of the tom comments that uh, Chris made was that oh, the, the idea of negative theology is what prevents us from falling into idolatry. Mm -hmm. yeah. That we must preserve the mystery of who God is. We must recognize the limitations of our ability to understand it. And if my pastor is correct, that was Pinnock's problem. Yeah. 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 And, and to be fair to Pinnock... And, and I don't want to be unfair to my fellow Reformed people, but a lot of times us Calvinists and Reformed people express our doctrine of, of God's election and sovereignty in competitive terms rather than classical Christian. And they lead to people like Pinnock wanting, not being able to deal because Pinnock is thinking of the sovereignty of God and God's election and God's priority in terms of one-to-one -one language, not analogous language. He's thinking of it as if God is a super being that if for God to be fully in charge means to suffocate your freedom and override you. 
Whereas classical vision is God can completely be, be the first in the order of being, directing, guiding, um, and decreeing everything. And yet human beings in their own order of being are unfolding according to the way God decreed it without there being a conflict. Pinnock has works in an opposition. And so in order for there to be a genuine human relation to God, God's got to be a superhuman like yeah, we he's are. Gotta, he's got to be just like us. Just like us. Right. And so, and I think that, that um, I think Darwinism, uh, I mean, the reason Darwinism became such a threat to Christianity was not simply because of the way Genesis texts were read, because Genesis has been read a whole variety of ways throughout Christian history. Sure. It worked with a church that already had moved to a God inside the box of creation rather than outside. So God, the only place for God was to be a designing, like a craftsman, right. rather than the, the, the giver of being to everything. Now, to, to Charles Hodge's credit, Princetonian reformed, and he, he tended to be okay with some of evolution, but he recognized that you can't jettison teleology or the classic view of God. So he was someone who went against the grain with it, even though he was kind of open to some of its ideas. Um, but, but, yeah, there is this sense in which, um, I mean, uh, Michael Hanby, uh, no God, sure, no, sure. no science, right. um, he's, he, from a Catholic side, he's trying to get at the theological vision that Darwin ran with. And he's trying to say that it, it wasn't Christianity that Darwin was running away from. It was this God inside of the, God in the dock kind of thing. Well, yeah. I, I, let's step back a little bit yeah. and think about sort of the history of ideas and yeah. think about the development of, of, of sort of science and, its, and how it, it comes to have the, 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 the role it plays in our society. So one of the things that anyone who spends any time thinking about the history of ideas and the, the sort of the rise of science in the West has to deal with is the role of Aristotle and, and sort of the eclipse of Aristotle at the dawn of the modern era. Now, our listeners may wonder, what does Aristotle have to do with the Bible? Or yeah. <laughs> Well, Aristotle... The early reformed even worried about that <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but Aristotle had, a, had two things that uh, he stressed when it came to understanding the natural sort of physical environment. He said, first of all, you have to understand the form of a thing, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to understand its purpose. Yeah. So forms and purposes, right? You've talked about this many yeah. times, Tom. Yeah. Kinds and then ends. ends. Yep. So, and we see that language throughout the New Testament. All over the place, yeah. Yep. So, so f- a form, so when we think about what makes anything what it is, yeah. Aristotle said there are four causes. You know, there's yep. the material cause, whether something is made of, then there is the efficient cause, how it came to be, what yeah. it is. And then there's the formal cause, yeah. which is what sort of constitutes its nature, how it is in the world. In other words, when we're talking about formal cause, we, we could say there is something we can name as human. Yeah. There is a human a, thing yeah. that's formal. Go ahead. In the presuppositional world, it's what Francis Schaeffer meant by the mannishness of man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, that's right. That's it's right. The, fu- yes, the, form, the management the, of man. That's yeah. right. We're talking about formal causation. Yeah. So, so uh, what it is, and it this there is there are subcategories. There's yeah. a female version of man, and there's a male version of man, and these are also formal causes. Yep. So they're givens. Yeah. They're not just up for grabs. That's right. And then there's the purposes of things. That's the teleological or the end 
the final cause. And all of these things are not within our competence or control. So we can do a lot of havoc on them, but they're, they, they, gov, they govern the order of reality. Right. So it doesn't matter. We, we can't socially construct these things. So can and, we, yeah. and we have to be very careful when we run into words like end mm-hmm. in the New Testament because it does not necessarily mean the termination. That's right. Yeah. So Christ is the end of the law. Right. Does that mean that the law ceases with with Christ? No. E- <laughs> it, 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 it's a lot more complicated than yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. The, it, telos it, is what the we're perfe- talking about. Yeah, the perfecting cause. Yeah, if you, if, you, if, you, if you can read Greek and you look at the word that's translated as end or purpose, they're the same word. It's, it's, a, it's yeah. a, some kind of variation it's on the word bringing something into its fulfillment, which does not therefore do away with the former so much as bring it to its, its completion. So, so now getting back to the point here is when we think about human beings, what is the chief end of man from the Shorter Catechism, Westminster? That's teleological yep. ends language. Yep. And what the response is to glorify God and enjoy so Him forever. forever. Yeah. Now, and we have completely lost teleology in our culture. Sure, partly because of Darwin. That's it. That's my point. Yes, that's my point. And also, when we get to sort of uh, subcategories, male and female. In other words, there is a female way to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and there's a male way to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And these are not pa- these are not things that pass away. This is Mar- uh, it's kind of a, a thing that I came across here recently. I was reflecting on this, and there was an article in, uh, I think it was Touchstone, on the endurance of male and female in the resurrection. Marvelous piece. Uh, it drew on Thomas Aquinas. It drew on Augustine. Um, it drew on, oh, who was that ornery you know, church father? I'm just trying to remember. Jerome. <laughs> Which I just brought a book back. I'm thinking about doing a show on Jerome. Really, I'm not kidding. Yeah, well, they talk about ornery guy. And <laughs> you want to know something interesting about him? It was very wealthy women who were his uh, funders and gave him house. So he could write the, the translate the Vulgate. There you go. So he has and so a, he could also kind of like <laughs> vent and, and be an ornery old guy talking about women and their makeup. But anyway, <laughs> uh, getting back to my, my point though is what what we have with the the birth of modernity and the rise of uh, empirical science is the falling away of formal and final causation and an approach to understanding the natural world that seeks to understand everything strictly within the efficient and material yeah. cause, causes. Uh, yeah. so, so everything is, is reduced to those two things. Now what that means is, is nothing is ever settled. Yeah. Which means that when we talk about man, we can't talk about human nature yeah. in any kind of definitive and final sense definitive, formal, final purpose. We can't talk about, which means that the door is open to all kinds of transhumanism, transgenderism, trans whatever, you know, trans speciesism. That's right. And and, I mean, of course, we could do a show how Hegel plays into that and all of that, but that's its own thing. But but yeah, what you get is this emphasis, this this polar, this kind of um, polarity between being and becoming. Um, whereas Christianity said that there, you know, there is a distinct nature, and yes, that that it is actualized through time. It is becoming in that sense of the word, but it is not becoming um, in an arbitrary or or um, 
discontinuous sense, but is one that, that is unfolding the genuine nature of what someone is perfecting it. So here's my point for the show. Yeah. Anyone who embraces theistic evolution will become a process theologian and embrace some kind of transhumanism, some, some form of transhumanism, because you cannot contain this thing. If you're consistent. Because I, I do think C.S. Lewis, at the end of the day, was a theistic evolutionist. Oh, I don't, I don't know if he was. Okay. Well, that'd be interesting. Well, he, yeah. he was very much a, uh, a critic of, of Darwin. Yeah, he was. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you might want to reread Perilandra. Okay. Well, no, it's fine. I'm just, I, I mean, always that, remember that, certain that, things he, I mean, I don't, certain I don't, ways of his argument. Yeah. Yeah. I, he, I, I'm not sure he thought this one through completely. Yeah. But in Paralandra, it's pretty yeah. clear that you don't have an evolved couple there. They were created in human yeah. form yeah. because Christ was incarnate. Yeah. But I, yeah, but I also saw his language about, you know, why did some kind of early primitive human that we'd probably not recognize um, as human be something that the favor of God's love? So, yeah, I don't think he was consistent, but that's, you know, that's another, another, another point. Which of us are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess my, my larger yeah. point is for the purpose of our reflection on the, you know, in the course of the show, is how do we deal with this whole matter of um, kind of, the sort of unanticipated uh, kind of effects of Darwinism. Yeah. So now, now Darwinism, uh, there are a few things that we can say in its favor. Let me just say a few things in its favor. Uh, when we think of sociobiology, sociobiology is an, is an attempt to use categories that are at home within a Darwinist framework to understand social relations. So particularly, it, 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 this is something that, say, red pillars on the internet like to turn to, <laughs> to, to justify the, uh, the kind of the hard and fast distinctions between men and women. Yeah, yeah. So they'll say, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, um, it makes sense for women to prefer a particular kind of man. From an evolutionary standpoint, it, takes, it makes sense for a man to, to favor a certain kind of woman. What are we referring to? Well, obviously, we're referring to those people who would make good mates, produce strong and intelligent children. In the terms of what would, what would a woman naturally favor, she would naturally favor a man with high status, with resources, these sorts of things that would be able to provide an environment within which during a very sort of extended time of vulnerability, she finds herself vulnerable <laughs> because she's, first of all, pregnant and she can't move around very well, you know, and then she's encumbered with a small child and she can't, move, again, move around very well and she has uh, a need for resources in order to raise this child. Now, of course, she could just abandon the child and turn away and you know, if she's some kind of Amazon, does not have any interest in being a mother, well, then the human race ends. <laughs> so, in, so in other words, there's a, there's a sense in which, because of the success of, is this sort of like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like uh, uh, success theory, in other words, you yeah. know, the bias towards success. Because a certain thing has succeeded, that kind of justifies its existence. So there's, there's a certain kind of man that a woman finds attractive. There's a certain kind of woman yeah. that a man finds attractive. What would be the things that a man would find attractive? Well, there are a lot of the things that are stereotypically feminine, not just in terms of personality, but physically. 
So, and what do, you, what do you know? These things seem to correspond to bearing children, you know? So, with all these things in mind, um, there's something to be said for that. There's a kind of on-the-ground, common-sense kind of uh, realism about Darwinism, and if we think about it in those terms. But the problem is that uh, it doesn't stay put. It doesn't just stay within the framework of you know reproduction it it has a way of leaping and it, and because it's open-ended there's always some sense that well who are you to say that this might not work out hmm. you know who are you to say that you know the changes that we see occurring in our society couldn't have some kind of salad salutary benefit in the long run we'll only know as sort of the, the story unfolds and as things kind of occur. Well, I know there's a, there's, a, there's a hard divide within the world of biology and sociobiology. Um, I know that, that the strict kind of old-school biologists do not think that the sociobiological interpretation is plausible. Um, the me- whole meme thing and all this, they think it's a fraud. Um, and they, they, of course, are castigated by the kind of woke crowd because they hold to there at least being some givens in the biological world that can't be um, written off as interpretations. And so um, because of that, you, you see the, the kind of biology becoming the new place of attack. Um, be, and, and it's strange because, uh, I mean, it's strange that biology, which did away with teleology other than functional teleology, which means, uh, okay, once we understand something that is there, we see it has certain orientations, therefore we can make some kind of estimations of something about what it is through what it does. You know, it's... Um, yeah. Except culturally, we've thrown that one out, too. We've thrown it, yeah, that's right. We've thrown it out. We've, re- we've interpreted it away. And this, so this is why you kind of see the, the fight now in universities universities trying to throw out old-school biology professors right. from, from, from these interpretive um, things. But, I mean, the whole thing is, you know, they don't understand how connected they are. Um, one, one thing, um, I mean, I think the ones that are throwing them out don't realize that it was the ones who did away with teleology in the larger sense that gave the ones down here the, the excuse to do away with, the, you know, the hang. I mean, it's like the Enlightenment, right? Biolo- think, of, think of Darwinian biology as like the Enlightenment. The, Darwin, just like the Enlightenment, had to borrow a lot of Christian capital to do its work. Um, and so Darwin changed many things, got rid of larger teleology, but he's, they still need to have some teleology. Sure. And so that, just like, just like um, the Enlightenment, had to have some kind of reason, even though it didn't ground it in the, the, the you know, God and all things relative to God, grounded it in the human subject. Well, uh, Darwin, it, you know, the nominalism, you ground it in the particular. Each particular, if you're going to understand what something is, you understand what it, how it functions, you know, and it, that's becoming. Um, and so what you get with that is the inability to make anything kind of wider than, than the specific. And you set the conditions up for the particular and the specific to come at war with that which doesn't have the ability to ground the universal. Darwinism cannot ground the universal. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I guess my point is, is that, yeah. is that in, in this sort of inner tension within Darwinism or this yeah. inner contradiction, the... Uh, Becoming yeah. uh, wins. Yeah. In other words, uh, yeah. this is why the biologists yeah. are get, are losing their jobs. 
yeah. is because they're dealing with a kind of givenness. This, yeah. this is the way things are, yeah. and they're saying this is how we arrived at this pl- this point. Yeah. And the bec- the the people who are the advocates of becoming are saying, well, that's no. There's there, there's nothing yeah. I should constrain us. There's no that's moral right. content to that. Yeah. Uh, what we ought to be able to do is just sort of live and explore and maybe discover some kind of way of doing things that hasn't been known yet, you know? And, yeah, and their argument is sort of like as an epiphenomenon, something outgrows my biological determination. I'm a consciousness. And even if it ends with my life, it still has the ability to direct me in some sense. And so that becomes everything for these. The subjectivity that has arisen out of my arbitrary... Yeah, yeah, and this, by the way, is one of the reasons why I think that Gnosticism and Darwinism are actually... uh, yeah. compat- not not just compatible, but ne- yeah. but but go together necessarily. Yeah. So a person who fully embraces sort of the Darwinist approach, kind of thinking, this is where we, you know we get to the fact value distinction. Yeah. This is where I think facts and values are are indistinguishable. I think that yeah. if you accept that this is the fact, then there are certain values that necessarily follow. Yeah. Now, you may have some concerns. You may have some sort of inhibition to seeing things kind of work out that way. But you'll die someday, and somebody else won't have those inhibitions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, 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 yeah. the advance of science, you know, has been described as, yeah. you know, just people dying. Yeah, that's <laughs> You know, right. one generation dies, and science advances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's because, a lot of truth to oh, that. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because, because yeah. people are, are, are committed to their ideas, you know. Yeah. So, you know, in yeah. fact, this is one of the things I witnessed. You know, we've witnessed this in yeah. the academy. yeah. We can, we can remember the days in which, uh, you know, you know, really decent liberals were running things, yeah. and and they would respectfully listen to you when yeah. you raised a, a question yeah. or or an objection to something that they said. Yeah. I, I have, you know, a number of people in my my past, but they were all old when I knew them when I was studying with them. And they're all gone now. They're either dead or retired. Yeah. And they were replaced by people who didn't have those, yeah. those virtues, uh, those inhibitions. Well, and what you see is, is I mean, that, that byproduct of a... With, with, with Darwin, you, you jettison the teleological in a, in a very strong way. And what do I mean by that? Inherent meaning and purpose. Right. Binding meaning and purpose. So it's loose. And then what you get is this notion that everything's in becoming, so therefore everything is progressing. We're advancing. Right. So everything is developing to a higher form of consciousness, a higher form of ethical and religious consciousness, right? A higher form of... So the old is always looked at as something to disdain, very contra to early, right. you know, thought where the ancient was, was right. wisdom, right. to something to be, to be, you know, to burn down or, or not, not put a limit on you. And so the cure, you know, as we talked about in another episode, the curi- the vice of curiosity becomes central to yes. this notion of, of, of um, forward thinking, governed by no teleology. Right. You know, why should I lean forward if leaning forward is going to ruin civilization? You know what I'm saying? Or but they it, don't think about that. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. Where, does, where does the notion of progress come from in all of that? Well, how, how do we measure that? Yeah. This is, of course, Chesterton's famous critique. Yeah. Of, of all yeah. of this. How do we know it's how, how do we know what, yeah. We There's no it. measure. Yeah, we have to have yeah. some endpoint in mind. Yeah. 
and I think usually the measure is subjective. It's my happiness, my my right. my um, contentment, my ability to. And as we look around yeah. us, can we can we say you know with uh, confidence that most people are completely complete idiots when it comes to their happiness and their and yeah. their contentment? Because yeah. nobody's happy and no one's content. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And all the all the avenues they've done to generate it um, have, have 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 been dead ends. Right. Yeah. So. Do you have anything you wanted to... to, to you can kind of looking like you've been chomping at the bit there. <laughs> well, the, the idea of everything being in process yeah. is kind of intriguing, and it's got a lot of implications on the social level. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in terms of how societies are organized. It creates a notion that... Um, well, it can go a couple of different directions. You know, maybe society advances on the basis of, of um, survival of the fittest, right. where you get a full-scale social Darwinism approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but increasingly lately, the tendency is to see society in terms of evolution um, very much in terms of competition, mm-hmm. that the people yeah. with power hold power because they are dominating other people, um, oppressing other people through domination, and that it's the job of the dominated now to rise up and um, replace, frankly, replace the oppressors. They wouldn't put it in quite those terms usually, but fundamentally, that's what they're arguing. I I think that is exactly where it has shifted. I mean, that that has become the the dominating way of, of applying... Darwin. I mean, I think that's what Foucault was up to. That's what the whole voluntarist tradition we've talked about was up to, um, came came about and expressed. Is is that yes, you you have, and, and so this was Nietzsche's point is that that his point is the problem is is that the way we're doing it, the way in which the 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 um, woke crowd are doing it, that somehow they want to guilt the dominant into feeling ashamed and allowing them to, to kind of rise up through that guilt uh, was, was what, what Nietzsche basically saw, if you will, was anti-will or anti-Darwin. Um, the, the truth is, is that if you want to be truly Darwinian, then you need to crush the, the daylights out of the week and eliminate them so that you can flourish. It's not, it's not give them space to be themselves, it's get rid of them. And right, actually, right. That's, that's one of the biggest dangers of CRT and several of these other types of movements yeah. that, as I look at it, the rational response from the perspective of whites who are being told that you're oppressors, you're guilty, you know, all of these kinds of things, the rational response from them is, if you're going to deal me this deck, I'm going to join a white nationalist group. Well, and I am going to protect my side. And the reason that, and that, that I mean, that Nietzsche kind of foresaw this strangely because one of the things he, 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 he kind of noted, he said that's kind of what he called the slave revolt. And he blamed it on Christianity, which right. I think it was wrong. Right. Um, but, but, um, but one of the things is, is that uh, what you get there then, yeah, strangely, is you get the other side. The reason it's instigated for people to go there is because those who want to have dominance as they start to get more and more of it is they start to want to treat the one who has made space for them to have power as the one that needs to be in the new slave position. And so it becomes a, a competition of wills. Who's going to have dominance? And that attracts people eventually say, you know what? It's either you or me. It's, it's me. So what I think that this demonstrates is that if we become completely 
amenitized. In other words, if everything is being played out at this level and there's no sort of horizontal or no uh, vertical dimension to things, if everything is horizontal, you know, when you think about if everything is played out on a, on a horizontal plane, then, every, then, then one party takes up space at the expense of another party, inevitably. There's no genuine communion. There would only be a kind of, I guess, melding, you know, of things together. You gotta have a vertical dimension to have communion uh, between unequals, and also to have any kind of, I guess, uh, ability to address conflict. So, if we think about, uh, you know, the way that uh, our ancestors thought about these things, Lagos, reason, provides a way for us to understand reality and order reality uh, based on given sort of uh, purposes, meaning ends, but also giving modes of being, meaning forms. So when we think about male and female, what we have are two modes or two ways of being human that are interdependent, non-competitive. They need each other, they help each other. But if you lose the vertical dimension uh, uh, that is provided by lagos, reason, and everything becomes kind of just flattened out, then you have the war of the sexes. One party wins at the expense of the other. There's no really room left for true communion, a true uh, sort of uh, sharing of life and, and, uh, and you know, uh, a common, in terms of a common wealth or a common future, there's you win and I lose or I win and you lose. Or at best we have a kind of stasis where we have, quote, equality, which is understood in terms of being radically, I guess, uh, you know, sort of partitioned. You don't get in my space, I don't get in your space, that kind of thing. You know, and everything becomes a matter of negotiated sort of, you know, you know ways of working with each other. Uh, you know, you give up something so that I can get something and that kind of, that kind of thing. There's no sense of, of, okay, we're pursuing a common good as a man and a, as a woman. Uh, we're instead pursuing our personal goods yeah. at our individual callings. That's right. Yeah. At, the <laughs> at the expense of the other. Yeah. So, you know, what I'm getting at is is that when we when when we what we've created and, and by the way, this this feeds you, you mentioned Nietzsche, but it also feeds into I think it also kind of ties into Freud. Yeah. Uh, what we end up with is is if everything is understood uh, at the at the horizontal level, kind of animalism animalism kind of survival and uh, quest for control, then inevitably you're going to have winners and losers, and communion mm -hmm. is impossible. Yeah. It's impossible in that. And, I, and I, I can't help but think, or I can't help but conclude, I should say, that this has something to do with divorce and the rise in divorce in our society. I, I can't help but think it has something to do with kind of the intractable conflicts that we have in terms of classes within yeah. our society. There's, there are always going to be people who are more educated than other people. There are always going to be people who have more resources than other people. But in the older way of thinking, 
the wealthy didn't think of themselves uh, as being wealthy at the expense mm -hmm. uh, of anyone else. They thought of themselves as being wealthy for the sake or sake of, mm -hmm. sakes of, of other people. You, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. The best sense of noblesse oblige. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. Now, this, this, by the way, is exactly mm. why I brought up the point early on that evolution occurs within a species, not between species. Mm -hmm. Because what evolution does is fundamentally, Darwinian evolution sets up the world in permanent competition, a person against person. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, because we are in an inevitable and unending competition for survival, meaning ultimately for reproduction. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. right. And then it gets softened, and it becomes a you know it becomes a question of um, competition for empowerment and the gain of, of certain kinds of entitlement and resource. I mean, it gets softened but applied, and I think it's, it's you see the whole language of it, entitlement and, and uh, empowerment are steeped in that. And, and I get, because what happens is, and this is where it gets complicated, we understand that Christianity also brought through the, you know, impure vehicles of the Enlightenment and other things um, ways in which human beings were able to kind of wean off of some of those enslaving aspects of life that as we understood the nature of reality in light of a fuller vision and relationships, we were able to, to be free in ways we weren't before. I mean, that was the whole point of Christianity and trying to create a Christian society, right? Um, is that the goods of the gospel are going to have long-ranging application to all these aspects of life that, that will, will kind of bring them to a kind of a, a little kind of a taste of what eternity is like. So marriage no longer has to, you know, to, to be looked at always through a lens of, um, of, of sin, but actually a place in which God is present and, and is transforming um, um, things and, and things of that nature. But I mean, Darwin really, yeah, ups the radicalization um, and we saw it with nominalism. We see it with the Enlightenment notion of the individual and reason. But you see it with Darwin really comes in and, and just kind of, I always say, cuts the, the last thread. He rips teleology out of the picture um, um, of, of any objective teleology other than just arbitrary. And so, yes, anything that places a hindrance on me in nature is something that is arbitrary. It's just there because something else wants to survive. And I have the right, if I am able to be more dominant, to, to forge it into my service, um, in my marriage, whatever it is. Um, it, it, there is that. I mean, and, you know, it'd be a great study, but to, to couple kind of everything we understand about the Christian understanding of the fall with how we understand basically Darwin's picture of reality. I bet you those things line up very, very right. close together. Right. Now, you know, there are people who will say, that uh, you know, Darwin was just dealing with the facts on the ground and trying to make sense of them. <laughs> you know, he's, he's dealing with the data and he comes up with the theory to make sense of the data. Um, my my growing, uh, I guess, um, <sighs> rejection, uh, sort of distance uh, from from that way of thinking. Isn't so much a matter of like you know filtering everything through a, a, a sieve, kind of understood 
in a Kantian way. Like, you know, it's it's all a matter of just your worldview, and you just... Yeah. You, but I, I, I think that that there really is something going on in reality itself, outside our heads, that we're missing, and that the modern approach can't see, because the, the approach, not consciousness, not just my biases and whatever, but the approach itself screens out, leaves out of you know, you know, beyond the sort of the, the, the realm of uh, of consideration uh, or is irrelevant. And one of the things, and I mentioned this earlier on in the show, one of the things that has become increasingly significant for me in terms of critique is ends. Yeah. So, like, when I think about a particular approach, for me, it's not. I'm. I'm it's not a uh, a violation of some rule to say, well, if you hold that position, this is what will come about. Yeah. For a lot of folks, that that's not permitted. Yeah, you're not allowed to think about the va- the validity of something in yeah. terms of what it leads to. Um, they're more or less, you know, their their mindset is, you know, their their way of thinking about it. Well, whatever it leads to is whatever it leads to. No big deal. No, I don't think so. I think that we need to think about if you hold that view, or if if this is the way you're interpreting reality, this is what it leads to. Yeah, this is what happens, and that's evidence that you've missed something. Yeah. Not just that it's a problem because we don't like that, yeah. but because we know at a very intuitive level, deeply, that that is just wrong. Yeah. So getting back to yeah. the point we've, been, we've made time and time again in, in yeah. our shows, if you really take critical race theory, Dar- you know, Darwinism, Marxism, and, and you really embrace the fundamental assumptions or commitments that underlie those approaches, there is no real reason why the strong should not just simply commit the weak to the flames. Yeah. Genocide. There is no reason not to. And if you actually read the, um, The Descent of Man from Darwin, he says that it is inevitable that sooner or later the civilized races will exterminate, his word, if I remember right, will exterminate the savage races, which he meant that the Europeans would exterminate people of other racial groups. Well, and I remember uh, the the infamous R.C. Sproul once said, if you buy the Darwinian line that we're basically the byproducts of random chance, we're we're basically... um, germs that have been coughed up from the universe with no larger, then it doesn't matter whether black or white people sit on the front or the back of the bus. Right. And his point is your whole ethical vision for justice is steeped in nothing more than your desire for power and yes you're going to end up being you're going to be end up confronting power in ways that are not healthy for you or anyone else. But, but, yeah. but and what RC is getting at yeah. there is you need formal and final causation yep. in order to make those kinds of value yeah. as- judgments yeah. that say that that's wrong. Yep. And that's my point. Yep. And th- your feelings don't matter at that point in a Darwinian world. Right. Yep. F- for me, yeah. increasingly, I have come to see that final and formal causation are non-negotiable, yep. that they are a means by which to evaluate yeah. things, including... Yeah. Methods for acquiring knowledge. Yeah. 
which means that formal and final causation condemn Darwinism. And that's, I think that's exactly why Oliver Donovan wrote um, A Resurrection of Moral Order, because yeah. he thought that the evangelical ethic had sadly and wrongly jettisoned formal and, and, and final causation. Well, and, yeah. and what better way to, to you know, sort of uh, valorize or vindicate final causation than the resurrection? That's right, that's right. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah, right. that's, that, that's it. I mean, that, 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 that's really the driving thing. And, and, I, and I think he's right, and I think we see this in every aspect. I mean, I see it in the, in the humanities. I see it in theology. Formal final causes are, are the missing link. And ironically, that term. <laughs> That'd be a great title for a book. The Missing Link, Formal and Final Causation. Tom that's Price. A bit, that's a bit of irony, isn't it? Uh, we dug up, out we of the mouths the of babes. We found the missing link in Africa. We've dug it up. Formal and, and Final Causation. Actually, right. I think you found it in Greece. Well, that, that, that's was, right. that was my punchline. It's, yeah. it's Aristotle. Yeah. Well, it's funny, um, Ed Fazer, Catholic uh, philosopher, but uh, he, he, he has uh, it's this book, Aristotle's Revenge. Oh, and, yes. And um, Eshen Gilson wrote a, yeah. a, one years ago on the same thing, uh, Aris, uh, Aquinas Talks to Darwin or something like that. Um, uh, very similar. And I think that's what uh, Hanby's up to as well. And I, I think we, we, we too should, uh, should be in that conversation. Well, we are here, but um, and I think we need to be because yeah. um, the... Quote, quoting verses is not going to address these issues. No, no, it's not. Unless we have some way of sort of undergirding our, our sort of our theology of quoting a verse. So, That's right. You know, when we think about uh, this whole matter, is man in some sense a complete, uh, completed project? And what I mean by that is, you know, when, when we think about creation as, it's, it's, as the account is given to us in Scripture, uh, there is a point in which man is brought into being, God creates man and says it is good. In other words, there's a sense in which there's something completed. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't more to do. That's right. There's a nature to be unfolded, but that That's nature it. is, that unfolding is the perfection of that given nature. That's it, it is not something different than that. It's continuous. There's a con continuity That's right. and fulfillment of yeah, it. Which, which gets back to, again, a biblical concept of uh, reproduction according to kind. That's right. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't change what it fundamentally is, is. but it develops. That's right. It. Yes. That's right. So, you know, the problem, there are so many problems with this evolutionary, you know, sort of framework uh, and way of thinking that you know, expresses itself in process theology and progressivism and, and so forth. And you've brought out many times, Tom, that one of the big problems is that it begs the question and it assumes the answer and it assumes yeah. certain things that it can't account for. And, 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 and those are the ends that the Christian faith says that human beings are created for. But it doesn't uh, do justice to the, to, to the creator who, you know, granted those ends or, right. or uh, established those ends. And consequently, what we find ourselves in at the moment is something that cannot last. That's right. Uh, a humane progressivism, by its very nature, is a epiphenomenon. It's, it's, a, it's something that will pass away. Yeah. And what is in store for us is, I think, far more brutal and gruesome. Yeah. Because uh, the inconsistencies in our thinking will get weeded out. So either... We repent, think again, 
metanoia, yeah. turn away, right, uh, and think rightly, or we just kind of, we're on the train and we follow, we, we ride the train to its ultimate destination, which is not Star Trek. Well, and one of the things you notice is, I mean, what, what is the attraction in the evangelical world to all these different, the, you know, the, the, all the going woke, um, critical race theory, all these things? Well, what it is is they find there a, a sort of teleology and a and a, a, a certain kind of formal causality that they 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 have got they've gutted themselves from right. from their own theological resources. So that fills in a blank. They call it an analytical tool. No, it's something that gives direction to what is a formless content. Yes. And so, but cla- that's my point: is the Christian intellectual heritage. I don't mean that simply about what what it, I mean. The whole Christian. Reflection on the Bible. How about that? Mm-hmm. The Christian reflection on the Bible in its rich history of doctrinal understanding and engaging all these subjects, that is the form that we should be working with. That's what the reformers worked with. It doesn't start with somebody who started at the university who has no connection to Christian uh, thought through the ages because they have no clue about any of that. They're not immersed within the world of people who have been immersed in Scripture and its, and its reflection. So their wisdom is, is wisdom of the world. Right. And so, you know, what D'Angelo or whoever is sitting around at the university thinking, we can weigh it, measure it in terms of its reasons, but in terms of its form and content, we should have a question mark writ capitals <laughs> um, right. because right. It, it's not grounded in the same ontology, view of God, and all things relative to God, and it's not grounded in the same understanding of teleology, the purposes of creation. And so their notion of justice from the get-go is not dealing with real justice. It's yeah. dealing with, as the, the Gregory Nyssa did, with the, the rhetoricians, an arbitrary theory. Yeah, it, my, my, my conviction is that when they talk about justice, they're actually talking about heat death. Yeah. They're talking about stasis. They're talking about things kind of settling down and evening out. Yeah. And, and, well, you know, when, when we talk about heat death and things settling down and evening out, we're talking about lifelessness. That's why we call it heat yeah. death. There's nothing creative about that. Yeah. And it's just simply a divvying up of stuff and sort of everybody kind of going into their own corner and kind of living, to, you know, for themselves. And there is Except an... I don't think that's where it leads. And the reason I don't think it leads there is because if they follow through on their own presuppositions consistently... We are in a war of all against all forever. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a question of which one of us can be top dog at any particular time. Well, that's right. it. it, it, it their, their claims for justice and equality are not ingredients within the Darwinian presuppositions that they, they, they are governed by. Right. And because of that, they, they, it's, it's a projection of, of Christian ideals or, or maybe Greco classical philosophical ideas, but they're not derivative from their understanding of reality. Yeah. yeah and, you know, and fun, fundamentally, one of, one of the key points from uh, my book, Why You Think the Way You Do, is that any worldview that is dominant for long enough will eventually bring about its natural, logical conclusions, or for that matter, its illogical conclusions. Right. It will inevitably produce those results. Yep. So if the assumption is that society exists of a bunch of intersectional groups that are always in competition of dominance over others, 
that's their vision of society. The only thing that they can hope for, the only thing they can work for, is getting our side on top and depressing the others, because that is the only reality. So there you go. You can't get rid of teleology no matter what ideals you have. It's just which teleology. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and how do you evaluate, evaluate it? Yeah, how do you evaluate Well, anyway, we, we've come to the point where we ought to wrap things up. This has been a, a, a fun conversation, a painful conversation, mm. you could say, in a way. Yeah. Because what we've been engaged with in, or engaged in doing is sort of uncovering uh, what's going on underneath the surface of... Mm-hmm. A lot of different things, you know, what's really going on underneath critical race theory, what's really going on with regard to sort of the social implications of Darwinism. You know, there are, there are a number of things that, are, that we, we've addressed in the course of the show that, you know, really ought to you know, spur us on to even more reflection because there's just yeah. a lot here to deal with. But we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we appreciate uh, your your support and your interest in the Theology Podcast. Um, over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to be, you know, back uh, here live and uh, in person with each other and recording a number of shows because we're all in kind of a transitional point here, uh, time, and and we're trying to get a number of shows uh, sort of in the uh, sort of in the uh, the pipeline. So they're ready to go when we're going to be pretty busy, you know, and not able to, to meet like we are meeting right now. But we're glad that you took some time to meet with us today, and we appreciate uh, your support and interest in the Theology Podcast. Anything you guys want to say as we say uh, goodbye? I think we've reached our natural end. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good uh, statement to end on. Thanks a lot, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.